0: there are two headings uh, that I looked up um, which precede these verses I looked them up in two versions I just felt it was a helpful helpful headings that don't appear on our screen so one heading in one version said this bit is called the future glory of Zion Uh, and the other one said the eternal covenant of peace Uh, so just to bear those in mind as we read because they're hard words to read um, but just to bear that in mind so here we go Isaiah chapter 54 verses 1 to 9 Sing, barren woman, you who never bore a child. Burst into song. Shout for joy, you who were never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch your tent curtains wide. Don't hold back. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes. For you will spread out to the right and to the left, Your descendants will dispossess nations and settle in their desolate cities. Do not be afraid, you will not be put to shame. Do not fear disgrace, you will not be humiliated. You will forget the shame of your youth and remember no more the reproach of your widowhood. For your maker is your husband, the Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. The Lord will call you back as if you were a wife deserted and distressed in spirit. A wife who married young only to be rejected, says your God. For a brief moment I abandoned you, but with deep compassion I will bring you back. In a surge of anger I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness I will have compassion on you says the Lord, your Redeemer. To me, this is like the days of Noah, when I swore that the waters of Noah would never again cover the earth. So now I have sworn not to be angry with you, never to rebuke you again. And then if you've got a a real Bible, flick over to Galatians 4, verses 4 to 6. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. And then Galatians 4, verses 21 to 27, tell me. You who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, but his son by the free woman was born as the result of a divine promise. These things are being taken figuratively. The women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free and she is our mother. For it is written, be glad barren woman, you who never bore a child Break forth and cry aloud, you who are never in labour, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband.
1: Well, please have that passage on your lap and let's think about these remarkable realities. It's uh, widely recognised that when you are in a post-Christian culture, sometimes you struggle for words. It was first observed by a man called Andrew Del Bonco after the uh, horrible events of the Twin Towers. People were searching linguistically and grasping for words to put to what had happened, what they'd seen on the TV screens. Bad, wrong, they're just not weighty enough. Where do you go for words to express the horrendous, Intent of two pilots and behind it a worldview for wanting to take two planes into two towers. Bad and wrong, just doesn't cut it, you need more. Evil. The word evil started to come back into modern language, but in a post-Christian culture, where doesn't good and evil not exist? How does that work? What about positively? What about when there is something wonderful that happens? When there is when there is an inoperable tumour that disappears, when there is a baby that is born with what looks like a tremendous defect and yet through medicine's limited but significant help and yet through a remarkable outward influence, they enjoy a long and prosperous life. It's as if a a miracle happened, evil, miracle, these big words that uh, don't have any place in modern parlance when you remove God from the equation are still used in the modern world, it's very interesting. This passage is about miracles, I don't know if you noticed that, verse 1. You meet uh, one of two women and it's about miraculous births and it's about um, miracles that happen when their hope seems to have gone. It's about miraculous birth, then there's a miraculous marriage, that's the second woman that we meet from verse 4 through to 9 or 10 really. And the passage as a whole works together to describe what a miraculous life looks like. Because we're looking at a character that the New Testament identifies as Jesus Christ, the servant of the Lord. Last week was the clearest song, the clearest passage from Isaiah 52 to 53, that really is just beyond any deniability that Jesus Christ is the servant, not Israel, not any other person, it's Jesus. Jesus. But for the next five chapters, from uh, 54 and following, you begin to see not so much the person identified as Jesus. That happened in 52 and 53 in the chapters that precede that. Now we begin to see his character. Now we begin to see the life that he brings. Now we begin to see the promises that he will fulfil. And it begins, as Sister Maria said at the beginning, with a description of miraculous births, verses 1 to 3. Let's think about that. This new reality that the servant will bring in. It's about miraculous births. Look at verse 1 to 3. There is a great paradox here once again. Verse 1, the first woman we meet, she's barren. She's never been in labour and yet she has so many children, verse 2, that they need to get a bigger tent. It's a wonderful image. They need to increase their family's home. They need to have a massive extension, not just on the side. They need a wraparound extension. They need rooms downstairs and upstairs as well, because she's having so many children. And yet, verse 1 clearly says that she's barren. Verse 3, not just a bigger tent or a bigger home. Verse 3 says she's going to have so many children, they are repopulating the nations. And abandoned cities are going to be full. Because this barren woman, something miraculous is going to happen to her. Now this has caused me to scratch my head this week. What is going on here? This is a prophetic image that God has given to his servant Isaiah, who's written down. But if we just stay in Isaiah, I think we're going to struggle to interpret it correctly. It does mean that God is going to increase the number of ethnic Israelites. They were in exile. But it's not just limited to that, that God is going to do something amongst his people, Israel. He's not just going to repopulate Jerusalem and the surrounding cities that are just an absolute train wreck with one stone not left on the other. They're going to return from Babylon. They're going to increase in number. But when we look at Galatians chapter 4 that Ruth read as well, when we look backwards from the New Testament, I think we get a firmer, a fuller understanding of what this passage points to. Because verse 3 says she's not just going to repopulate the nation, singular. That would be Israel. It says nations. It's bigger than Israel. It's global. It's ethnically diverse. This lady, Israel, is going to have something done through her so that she's going to influence the nations of the world. That's why Paul quotes it in Galatians chapter 4. Verse 1 is in Galatians 4, Sing, O barren woman, you who never bore a child. Now what is Paul saying? Because this is hard language, stick with me. In that passage from Galatians 4, read it after lunch, or before, because you'll be sleepy after lunch. Read it before lunch. And it's talking about those that God will bring in, those that God will bring new life to, not just physically, more importantly than that. He's talking about spiritual life. He's talking about new birth. He's talking about life from above. He's talking about being born again. Not just being born for the first time physically. He's talking about anyone that God will bring new life into by the power of his spirit through faith in his son for the glory of his name. It's about fulfilling this gospel promise to the nations. That's what Paul is getting at. New life where there was barrenness, hope where there was despair. All those images come and bear fruit. So it's not about bigger tents, it's not just about bigger homes, it's about a new people, multi-age, multi-social status, multi-ethnic, where there was barrenness and hope, there is now, now—or barrenness rather, and despair, there is now hope and life. Think about this idea of being born again though. In Galatians 4, Paul is saying, look, when you think beneath the surface, when you think about your heart in the first few verses of that chapter, Galatians 4, he's saying, think about your best moments, Nigel. Think about your best moments, put your name there. We know that actually, even on our best day, we are not the person we would long to be. Yeah. We know that on our best week, actually, we're still very selfish. We're not as generous as we should be. We're not as kind as we long to be. We're not as... We're just not the people we want to be. If you really walked with me as a shadow for the week, if you looked at everything I saw or if you look at every word I said and heard it, you would be very, very discouraged. I'm not the person I want to be. I don't just need someone to come along me and coach me to be a better person. The Bible says, actually, you need a revolution within. You need new life. It's not just life change. You need new life. And whether the phrase is new used or not, the theme is there throughout the Scriptures, throughout the whole Bible. We need to be born again. And that's what Paul is talking about in Galatians chapter 4. Let me prove it to you from some heroes from the Bible. Think about Abraham. Abraham, the hero of the faith, he uh, actually was a pretty shady character at times. He sends a woman away, Hagar and her son Ishmael, because they were causing family strife. So he sends them away into the desert to die. That's hero Abraham. He exposes his wife to potential sexual abuse by disowning her. She's not my wife, she's my sister. And not just once, he does does it twice in his life. He's an absolute unhero when you look at it. But God intervened in his life. That's the key point. Think about David. Great King David. You know the story, some of you. Here is David who lusted after another man's wife to whom he owed his life and arranged for him to be knocked off, to be killed by troops withdrawing from the hottest point of the battle all so that he would have the lusts of his heart fulfilled. But God intervened in his life, that's the point. We need intervention, we need a miracle in each of our life, we need to be born again. That's the uh, reality of the gospel that we've just sung with the children. No one is good, I'm not. And friends, if you think you are, you're fooled. You need to be born again. You need a miraculous new beginning. Not just a fresh start, not just a New Year's resolution. I'm surprised if anyone's been keeping them. You need to be born again. And that's there in an echo in verse 1 of Isaiah 54, and it's certainly there in Galatians chapter 4. It's this first image of a barren woman through whom new life to the nations will be given not just to Israel. It's a miraculous birth. But then we meet a second woman in verses 4 to 10. Verses 4 to 10, there's a, if God can work miraculously to bring new life when there is death, to bring new life to a womb that doesn't work or never worked, now he can bring life to a marriage that is dying or decayed, to promises that are broken. It's not just life to a dead womb, it's life to a dead marriage the second point, a miraculous marriage. Dave, when he was preaching a few weeks back on Isaiah 50, had these tricky verses at the beginning of the passage that he dealt with very well. Israel, throughout the Bible, is depicted as a wife. God is the heavenly husband. And he's not just a husband for a season. He's a husband to his people, Israel, for centuries. He is faithful. He loves her. He provides for her. He protects her. He cares for her. He nurtures her, despite how they treat him. It's heartbreaking were you to read the book of Hosea, were you to read the whole of the Old Testament or have it summarized for you? You've got God's faithfulness in huge neon lights. And then, in spite of God's love and faithfulness, you've got his people's unfaithfulness. It's the story of the Old Testament. From one angle, it's idolatry, spiritual idolatry. God's people turning their back on their loving, faithful husband. And so how will God respond? This passage tells us that God responds like any human husband responds. Verse 8, I hid my face from you. Verse 7, I abandoned you. It's as if God is saying, I cannot be with you anymore. I love you. We were married. We had a covenant promise together. I promised that I would always love you, but you've been unfaithful to me. And so I will hide my face from you, verse 8. I will abandon you, verse 7. But here's the dilemma. God's beloved people, this little nation of a few tens of thousands of people, it's tiny at this time. They're surrounded by a huge Assyrian army, huge Babylonian force throughout their history that is going to wipe them out unless God finds a way to rescue them, finds a way to look at them again, finds a way to end the separation, finds a way to deal with their unfaithfulness. And verses uh, 5 through 9, there are these huge contrasts in this prophecy that we're to see this massive dilemma. Look at uh, verse 5. Who is God? I am your maker. I'm the Lord Almighty. I'm the Holy One of Israel. I'm the God of all the earth. That's God's character on display beginning in verse 5. Look at verse 7 and verse 8. But God is angry. He's angry at their unfaithfulness. He's angry at their covenant breakingness He's angry. He's a holy God. He's a wrathful God because of his justice. He's a mighty God. He's the creator God. And yet, nevertheless, this passage also says he's a tender husband. He's a lover, verse 6. For all of God's holiness that doesn't change his wrath that is right, his justice that is unchallengeable. Verse 6, although his people turn their back on him, in spite of their actions causing this justice from God, this rightful anger, even though it's their own fault, verse 6 says, I see your distress. It's the compassion of God. God doesn't say, I see you're upset, serves you right. Nothing of the sort. Verse 6, I see your distress. Their actions move him to anger. Their actions also move him to compassion. Verse 7 and verse 8. Though my wrath was righteous and right, though I turned away from you, my everlasting Kindness, that's the word chesed. That's the Hebrew word for strong, never-ending, never-breaking, committed covenant love. Nevertheless, I love you. No matter what you've done, my love will overcome my wrath. My mercy and compassion will win the day. I'm going to do something, God says, to renew our marriage covenant. You've broken it. There's no way back for you by yourself. I need to make the first move. I need to make all the effort. I need to open my arms again. I'm right to walk away from you because of how you've behaved. But instead, I'm going to pursue you. And there's this is great juxtaposition of how can the wrath and justice of God that is right and appropriate meet the love and compassion and mercy of God. It's impossible. But then we read verse 10. God is going to do something remarkable so that they'll never be separated again. How can this be? The only way that we can understand this is the cross, isn't it? The justice and wrath of God against an unfaithful people just like me and you and the mercy and the compassion and kindness of God that never changes. How can this be, these two polar opposites of God's justice and wrath and anger appropriately and rightly and his mercy and his compassion and tenderness notice verse 7 once again I abandoned you but no more you know that word there is the same word as forsaken I will forsake you I'll turn my back on you no more It's the same word from Psalm 22 it's the same word that Jesus quotes from the cross my God my God why have you forsaken me How can these two wonderful realities of God's character, his justice, that's a wonderful truth about his reality. His love and compassion, another wonderful truth. How can they be reconciled? By the cross. By the cross. Look at verse 7. Why will we never be forsaken again? Because verse 7, Jesus was forsaken. Look at verse 8. Why will we never lose The face and countenance of God because Jesus lost the face of God on the cross. Verse 9 and 10, the very flood of God's justice came down upon him on the cross at Easter. Which is why his covenant promise is like mountains. It will never pass away. Even if they do, my covenant promise will never pass away. I will pursue you, although you've been unfaithful. I will love you. I will woo you again. All because of my love. Imagine you've got a friend, they come round for Sunday lunch this afternoon. And uh, a bit of hijinks is happening. I'm sure that might happen in one or two homes. And they break a chair. It's not just any any chair, it's your heirloom chair. The one that doesn't fit with the rest of the scheme, but you love it. It's your comfy heirloom chair and they snap it in half. Now at that point, because most of us have an English Western upper... Stiff upper lip and all that. We're tempted to say, don't worry about it. But really, you're very worried about it. Really, you're very cheesed off and upset about it. And what you want to say is, you pay for that. And it's not just an Ikea chair. Nothing wrong with Ikea chairs. It's a family heirloom. You're going to pay. When someone breaks a chair, you need to make a decision. Will you say, you'll pay for that, please? Or will you generally say, don't worry. No need to pay for it. And if you say that, you know that you're taking the cost upon yourself, that you need to replace the chair. Whether it's uh, irreplaceable, you get a one from Ikea, just for product placement purposes. You get a Poang and it bounces forever. Or you get another one. There's the choice. When there is a bit of hijinks and the chair is broken, who's going to pay? Either they pay or you pay. <coughs> How can God forgive us for all the wrongs that we've done to him? It's as simple as the chair. Someone's got to pay. Either you pay the price or he does. It's as simple as the chair. Not to trivialise the cross in any way, but on the cross of Christ, he's paying. Jesus Christ says, I'll pay. You can never pay. But I will take the punishment that you deserve. I will pursue you. You'll never come back to me but I will pursue you with arms that are blood-stained, with hands that have holes in them, that feet that have scars in them, all because you've broken, not a chair, but you've turned away from me and you've loved something else. I'm worthy of your love, that's not. But on the cross, a holy Jesus had to die. But he's so loving and so merciful that that's the only way for God's wrath to be satisfied by his own death. And so now, the wonderful reality is not just a payment of a debt. Now, Christian friend, let me remind you, no condemnation is against your name because all your sins have been paid for and all of the righteousness of Jesus Christ is now yours as well. It's a remarkable truth. That's why it's a miraculous birth and that's why it certainly is a miraculous marriage. Now, what flows out from that? A miraculous life. A miraculous life. Four things. I need to go quick. This has been kind of high. Four things of application. If you were to live a miraculous life that this passage (coughs) describes, birth, marriage, and life, what would that look like? Four things. Number one, if you were to become a Christian, even this morning, the first thing you need to do is pay attention to verse six. You need to answer the call. Notice verse six. The Lord will call you back. To become a Christian, you need to recognise that you need to return to your true lover. It's a wonderful picture of God's covenant love towards you, even if you don't recognise it. Speaking of the same imagery, the Bible describes us as loving something else. God is described in other passages in the Bible as a king who rightly rules He's described as a shepherd who lays down his life and rescues us. He's described as a father who's adopted us. But here, he's a husband who loves us. To answer the call, you need to recognise that you're loving something else or someone else. Something else is more important to you than the affection and love of Jesus, our husband, of God, our Father. It might be a person, it might be a career, it might be your figure. It might be your family that you are putting at the forefront of your priorities. They're ruling your heart's motivations. To answer the call to live a miraculous life that begins with new birth, you need to see that you're loving something else. And in verse 6, Jesus says, come back. God the Father says, come back. God the Holy Spirit says, come back. You've been unfaithful, but because of the cross, There is a way back. That's the first thing of the miraculous life. Here's the second. You need to forget your shame. You need to forget your shame. Look at verse four. You will forget the shame of your youth and remember no more the reproach of your widowhood for your maker is your husband. I know very little of Shakespeare, but apparently the great bard in Lady Macbeth said something like, out, damned spot but I can't get it out. There's blood on my hands. A lot of us feel like that, don't we? We've done stuff in our past. You might not be able to see it because we clean up pretty well. But there is guilt and shame from our past decisions. Some of us feel like failures. We're respectable on the outside, but on the inside, there are stains still that we can't remove. Spots on our hands like Lady Macbeth. Perhaps we feel defiled. Perhaps we feel wounded. Perhaps we feel dirty. Things happen to us that are too painful even to mention now. How do you forget your shame? You need to knead in the yeast of the gospel with your hand into your heart. You know what it's like if you're doing a bit of Mary Berry and kneading and working in some yeast and you don't have a bread maker, it's broken down. The Panasonic 2500 is broken It'll never happen, I hope, in our house, but you're there, you're needing, you're working in all the stuff that you need to. You've got flour all over the kitchen like me, but you're needing, you're working it in. Friends, the only way to deal with your shame is to knead in the truth of the gospel. You need to understand it afresh. You need to forget your shame. Let me tell you the story from Mark 14. In Mark 14, you meet Peter. As you've read through the Gospel, you recognise that Peter has foot-in-mouth disease, and he's promised to never let Jesus down. But it's there, and Jesus is being beaten up the night before the cross. He's being tortured and prepared for the crucifixion. And Peter is asked three times, isn't he? Do you know this guy, Jesus, by a girl and some other people? Do you know Jesus? Do you follow him? I don't know him. I've never seen him, never heard of him. And just as Jesus said, before the cock crows, you'll deny me three times. I'll never do that, but he did. At the end of John's Gospel, there's a wonderful moment where Jesus comes and gets the truth of the Gospel and kneads it into Peter's heart and his experience. And teaches him again that your maker is your husband. Peter has been unfaithful, he's disowned him. He's loved approval and identity and looking after his own skin rather than Jesus Christ. And Jesus comes to him in John 21 and says, remember the gospel. Let me knead it into your heart. I love you. Do you love me? I love you. Do you love me? I love you. Three times he says it, reminding him to forget the shame. Take a picture of the ocean. Peter, take your shame and dive into the ocean of my grace dive into and enjoy the oceans of my grace, you are going to lead the church, the first century church. You are going to be the best leader there because you were the worst failure. That makes you the best leader when you see my strength and my grace and my sufficiency. I will humble you, but also you're totally secure in my purposes and in my grace. Very effective people are often broken people forget your shame, remember the love of Jesus. Number three, count your real children. Count your real real children. This passage, Isaiah 54, is not talking about physical children. I've told you about Mim and Liz. I could say to you, what about Dick Lucas? He had no children physically. He had thousands spiritually. What about John Stott? What about a man called Billy Graham? What about Gladys Elwood, who kind of hoiked up her skirt and went through tremendous difficulties to get to China and spread the gospel. What about Jim Elliot, who had physical and spiritual children? What about Jesus Christ? What about the Apostle Paul? What about the men and women of the faith that laid down their lives in places you've never heard of because they're committed to the cause of Jesus and getting the gospel out? Friends, will you be able to count your children when you have more grey hairs than the colour currently on your head? Will you be passionate about spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ in this generation? It does not matter if you're married or not. This is spiritual children. This is gospel priorities. This is prayer. This is sweat. This is getting up early. This is being committed and cutting out eggs for an Easter party. It's about thousands of children, spiritually speaking, not physically speaking. Count your real children. Fourthly, finally, burst into song. Burst into song. This is a song about the reality that your maker is your husband. It is remarkable to me that God is not just our king, He is also our spouse. When it comes to marriage, as a marriage coming up soon in the life of the church, when it comes to marriage, people often get attracted because first of all they think four. They think He's a bit of all right, she's a bit of all right, and they like the look of the outside. It's only after a while do you dig beneath the surface of character and think. Yeah, we fit, we work together. They're a beautiful character as well. Here we have a description, not about spousal love. Isaiah 53 said, there's nothing beautiful. We would not have been attracted to Jesus Christ. He was an ordinary person who was disfigured for us. Jesus did not come to us because he was attracted to us. God the Father did not send his son because he needed someone to love. He chose to love us out of his free will. He didn't need us, he chose to. We were not attractive, but God showered his love upon us anyway. When you get a sense of how beautiful we are to Jesus so that he would die for us, we get a sense. Well, God stops being useful and he starts being beautiful to us. You know uh, Robin Williams Who is the wonderful voiceover in Disney's Aladdin? He's the genie in the bottle. Friends, when you see the beauty of King Jesus as your lover, he stops being useful to you and he becomes beautiful to you. That's the difference. You get a sense of enjoying him just because of who he is, not because of what he can do for you. And then you can start to sing. What could you sing? You could sing this I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in his arms and in the arms of my dear Saviour. There are 10,000 charms. Friends, is Jesus useful to you or is he beautiful? Let's pray.